Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader, and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content, events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Eugene Wang, founder of Sophie's Kitchen Vegan Seafood Company in Sebastopol, California. Eugene started the business in 2010 in response to his daughter Sophie's severe allergic reaction to shellfish, along with learning about the devastating impact of overfishing. Currently available in more than 2,000 retailers across the US and Canada, Sophie's Kitchen products are unique in that they use konjac, also known as elephant yam, to create the seafood taste. They're also soya-free, GMO-free, gluten-free and contain no cholesterol, trans fats, preservatives, colours, MSG or sugar. Eugene has been involved in his family's business, which manufactured and distributed vegetarian foods throughout Asia and North America for more than 30 years, and has extensive experience launching and developing growing businesses. This includes acquiring national distribution for the top US natural distributor, UNFI, and developing sales in the natural and speciality market in Asia for leading US natural product companies. In this interview, Eugene talks about the three different types of meat alternative businesses and the importance of knowing which you're going to place your product in, the importance of offline marketing, particularly for food products, the importance of getting the right contacts to get your products into retailers, the benefits of outsourcing your food manufacturer rather than running your own factory, the two types of entrepreneurs and the importance of defining which one you are, why you must keep a good credit rating and establish a relationship with your banker long before you start your business, and much more. Here's the interview with Eugene Wang of Sophie's Kitchen. Hello, Eugene, and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Castrina. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today because you're doing something really quite unique in the vegan business arena because your speciality is vegan seafood, which is pretty cool. So the first question I ask everybody is why? What are your reasons for for running Sophie's Kitchen? Why do you do what you do? Well, uh, I came from a family where Buddhism, vegetarian manufacturing and seafood allergy are all deeply rooted in our DNA. And just about eight years ago, one night I was hosting a group of friends and I accidentally feed my eldest daughter, Sophie, then two-year-old, some shellfish. And we were this close to send her to the hospital. And that horrible experience just got me thinking. You know, I thought, well, since my family had been in the sharing manufacturing for over 30 years, maybe we can use some of our technology to make some seafood alternative for her to eat while we are eating real seafood. So I used some soy to make it, but she didn't like it very much. 
And then I realized something, you know, I mean, I saw problems in two spaces. One, in our seafood supply, seafood industry, you know, there's overfishing, crowded fish farm, and then slave labor. And then in our meat alternative space, we're just using too much soy and possibly a little bit too much uh, wheat also. There's just not a lot of alternative protein sources. And so that give me that give me think got me thinking and give me the idea to start Sophie's Kitchen. So in two thousand ten I started Sophie's Kitchen in San Francisco and it's now uh, available in US and Canada uh, through two thousand more than two thousand stores right now. More than two thousand. Wow, that's amazing. That's great. I love that. I love that you've you've got a sort of multi pronged approach. Like you you've sort of got several. You had several reasons for for starting up the company um, from a sort of health and family perspective, and also the ethical side of things. Um, as you say, the overfishing, the slave labour, and obviously the cruelty to the sea animals as well. So, um, so that's great. So, in terms of uh, vegan food, and I've 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 asked this of a lot of vegan food manufacturers. Um, a lot of the time, vegan food and even more so if it's organic or sustainable or otherwise socially responsible is more expensive because unlike animal agriculture industries it's not subsidized so can you say something about how you deal with the challenge to stay competitive and attract customers to your product that's a very excellent question Katrina. you know we are possibly uh, three to four times more than the average animal protein we're trying to replace and so in order to lure customers, we really have to be number one, transparent, and number two, uh, with uh, high integrity. Uh, by that, I mean, uh, number one, we had a lot of uh, certifications, like uh, we are non-GMO project verified, and we are kosher, you know, and also in terms of integrity, we don't use any soy, we don't use uh, anything gluten, and uh, all our products, even our facility, are gluten-free. And so that is the way we can attract uh, the niche customer, the, the vegan and vegetarians to begin with. And one, once we establish that beachhead, it is not so difficult for us to attract the even broader flexitarians and even the meat eaters down the road. And so that's our strategy to stay competitive in this uh, high cost, uh, uh, very expensive uh, uh, business world. Got it. Yeah, because it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we want to make these products available to the masses and make them affordable. And yet we're competing with these animal industries that are heavily subsidized. So I'm quite pleased that there's now organizations like the Good Food Institute and the Plant-Based Foods Association that will hopefully be able to lobby governments to help to subsidize, you know, great products and businesses like yourself to to get them to broader um, people but that's I love what you said about though you know really kind of creating that niche or attracting that niche market by being transparent and getting those certifications so thank you for sharing those um, so when you first started out as you mentioned you started Sophie's Kitchen in, in 2010 um, you obviously had a lot of business experience before that but what were some of your key challenges when you first started out Sophie's Kitchen? Well, uh, I started uh, Sophie's Kitchen in 2010, and that was like 
long before、uh, Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods were invested by a lot of these、uh, celebrity investors like Bill Gates or、uh, Google's founders. And so, very few people are paying attention to this、uh, meat alternative or plant-based world. So、um, I was really having a hard time even to convince my family.、Um, they 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 they've been doing business mostly in Asia. They knew how tough it is to enter the U.S. market, how expensive it is to enter the U.S. market.、Uh, but then again, you know, I guess all I can say is the passion. You know, my passion just just helped me to hang on to. To 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 the idea and 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 kind of、uh, fighting through all the challenges, and then and then get to what we are today. You know, if if it's not my passion towards the vision business and towards、uh, you know、uh, coming up with a solution for this world, I guess I probably will long、uh, be giving up、uh, this idea or even this business, and that、mm-hmm. will be. Disastrous, not just for myself. I believe for the whole industry and the whole world. In my personal sure. Now you、yeah. mentioned one of the challenges being expensive to get into the U.S. market. Can you expand on that a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, you know,、uh, the U.S. market uh, is uh, actually a very well structured、uh, market in the world, and and actually it is also one of the one of the most affluent market in the world too. But then again, just because that it's well structured, everything is you have to have the right contact to go through everything. Number one, and number two, after you get the right contact, you have to pay the right amount of money, and that's cost your expense of doing your business. And and number three is that you really definitely have to have very good planning, and that is something I'm still trying to. Figure out. I mean, my planning so far is not great either. I mean, there's so many things you have to plan for. You have to plan for your inventory. You have to plan for your cash flow. You have to plan for your personnel. You have to plan for your marketing strategy, your brand image, whatever. You know, different stages, different,、uh, even different stores. You would have different strategy going into it. And different market, even in, within U.S.、Um, you know, when you go to Midwest, there's a lot of meat eaters. When you go to the the the, the East, West Coast,、uh, California, especially, you know, vegan restaurants are almost everywhere, so people appreciate it. But when you go to East Coast,、uh, depending on where in the on the East Coast you go to, you know, if you go to Boston, New England area, that's totally different. If you go to Mid Atlantic,、um, you know, Maryland, Virginia, that's good, you know. People there welcome anything plant-based. So all these knowledge and information are a huge challenge for you as an entrepreneur to number one absorb and number two、uh, to to leverage that information to your advantage. And that that I think is key、uh, to to be you know entering winning this market. Absolutely, thank you for sharing that. That was great. So, did you? I'm presuming you worked with a distributor. Did you kind of work with a distributor initially, or because I know like some like small businesses, for for example, they may initially approach the retailers directly and like literally go and drive around and then get a distributor. Did you do that, or did you kind of go straight in with either a broker or a distributor <clears throat> to get your products、um, in the retail outlets? 
Well, I, I think I was uh, kind of lucky. Uh, when I first uh, entered the U.S., I have uh, two very key partners that I work with, uh, one of them uh, being uh, a retired uh, senior VP of uh, United Natural Foods, UNFI, which is the largest natural food distributor here in U.S. And so that through that connection, uh, you know, I got into UNFI network pretty quickly. And plus the fact that I have been work uh, with UNFI uh, before the Southeast business for already for six some years. So I know quite a few people there. So that helps. And um, on the other hand, I got another partner in the business who are actually who knows a lot of uh, uh, people in Whole Foods. So we quickly got accepted by Whole Foods head office and a lot of the different regions. Um, and, and, and no question asked, they just want to want our products ASAP uh, the first day we started the business. And so those two key factors really help us uh, getting to distribution um, really fast. I would say compared to other vegan business, um, we probably just use about less than a year to get to 300 store uh, count. Um, you know, uh, uh, threshold or that, that, that is a kind of a phenomenon for a lot of uh, vegan business right here, you know. For sure. So what I'm hearing there is the advice is to really like get to know your industry, you know, inside out, back and front and to make those contacts um, because it's, it's people that are going to help you get the products into the retailers. And, and obviously, like you say, you already happen to have those contacts, but for people who don't, the advice will be obviously for them to, you know, to keep getting themselves out there and to make those, those kind of contacts to, to get into stores. Um, Cause I was going to ask you what the, what your selling point or what your unique selling point is like what makes you stand apart from other products I think you already answered that in that you mentioned that you know there's no soy which is quite rare actually um, you know to have a product with no soy and no gluten which is is pretty amazing um, so in terms of competition now because we mentioned as you started out there were very few particularly vegan seafood manufacturers and now you know we've seen the marketplace in vegan foods vegan meat alternatives and and coming up with, with vegan fish alternatives as well so how do you continue to, um, I guess, yeah, keep your brand top of mind? Right. You know, uh, that's another excellent question, by the way. You know, uh, we were just talking about it the other day with uh, a group of um, uh, investors. You know, uh, this is how I see the competition is doing right now in the market. You know, uh, I can say there are maybe three camps. The first camps are... First camp is more like old school. Uh, they use a lot of soy or sometimes wheat. Um, they have a lot of uh, synthetic ingredients. Um, definitely not GMO-free, probably not even gluten-free. But they make good texture because, after all, if you're talking about meat alternative, that's what customers are looking for. So that's the first uh, camp. The second camp is the new camp uh, um, uh, led uh, by possibly uh, companies like Impossible Foods or Beyond Meat. Um, they want to make their burger experience as real, close to the beef, real beef burger as possible. So their patties will bleed, their patties will cook up just like the real beef patties, and their, their taste, according to their uh, statement, is also close to the real beef uh, burger. And the third camp will be our, will be us, you know. Uh, in our opinion, you know, I, I don't think uh, people who are looking for meat alternative 
um, they were necessarily looking for that fishy, meaty flavor. I think they understand the differences. And quite frankly, quite honestly, technologically, you can never do a plant-based burger that is 100% identical to the beef, real beef burger, in my opinion. So <laughs> what we want to do is we want to use culinary uh, expertise uh, to elevate that uh, sensory uh, the, of the product so that people, even though they understand this is plant meat, but then they will still say, this is delicious. This is something I want to repeat uh, buying. And that is, uh, that is what I think uh, will, number one, help maintain your high uh, ingredient integrity, and number two, uh, 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 keep your customer happy. I, 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 I do think uh, that, uh, you know, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, just about uh, 20 years ago, there's only cow milk in the dairy section in the grocery store. And then starting from 10-something years ago, soy milk appeared in the grocery store. So you got cow milk and then maybe one-third or half of uh, soy milk in, uh, in the grocery aisle, in the dairy, dairy section. And just about five years ago, there is uh, 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 pea milk, almond milk, cashew milk, hazelnut mm-hmm. milk, all kinds of dairy alternatives coming up into the market. But let me say this. Is there anyone can say that... The, the almond milk or the soy milk is 100% identical to the cow milk? No. But people mm-hmm. still like it. People still enjoy it. They understand the difference. They want to buy for that difference. So this is what we see the future of the world, and this is how we're going to uh, be different and be unique from our competition, is that we want to be true to the plant-based foods. We don't want to make it or dress it up like not a real meat alternative. No, we're not real meat. We're just meat alternative, plant-based. And we want to be be good, be excellent uh, by working with a lot of uh, professional, professional chefs to, 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 to elevate our culinary uh, uh, skill and, and make that an extra, extraordinary experience for our customers. So that's what we I strive love that. to do. I really yeah. like that. And I love how you explained those three different uh, types of products. I, mean, that, I haven't really heard anyone explain that in, in such quite easy terms. And Thank I, I think that really makes good sense. And I, I love that you've defined your approach and your approach is more about it's re-educating people. So like you say, it's not just creating the exact replica or trying to make it as close to it. It's actually re-educating people um, exactly. with their palates. And like you say, I, I love what you say about making it equally as tasty, um, but not yeah identical, which is great so that, that's that's fantastic um so in terms of before we go on to talk a little bit about um uh, you know promotion and, and and marketing your your company what about staff so how many staff do you have at sophie's kitchen approximately right now we have uh about uh, four people working uh in the business other than myself and um, uh, um, we have um, uh, two sales, uh, two 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 people on the sales team, and one uh, in the demo team, and another as office manager, and, uh, and there's also another um, uh, partner who is in charge of uh, our strategy and innovation. So we're we're very nimble. We're still very small, but I think uh, that's also how we can 
be uh, very, very humble and very agile, um, very uh, quick in terms of responding to whatever uh, our customers are asking and the market is demanding, you know. Sure. And it's also good, I think, for people to hear that, that you don't have to have this you know, massive team of 100 staff in order to get into <laughs> over 2,000 retailers. So that's, that's actually right. pretty cool. I was surprised that you said that. I was, when you, you right. said about four, I, thought, I was thinking, gosh, are you going to say 40? Is he going to say 400? And then you're like, four? I'm like, wow. I'm <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and no, I we're at, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I just want to say that uh, we're, you know, my my father used to run a factory for over 20 years and the first thing when i started the food uh, started to enter the food business he 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 warned me that don't try to run your own factory till you really have to <laughs> and, uh, i definitely can see the challenges after i uh, been starting my business is that as an owner or as a founder, you do want to focus your energy on building the brand and the business and the customer feedback. You don't want to deal with the, the mundane daily ins and out of uh, employee, uh, factory people, factory level accidents or whatever things you have to deal with FDA or whatever. You know, I I think that's a, a number one ease of my a peace of mind, and, and number two is that uh, as a small business, um, I think. Um, uh, especially that would help you kind of experimenting a lot of your idea. And then down the road, when you really see your volume build up uh, to a degree and you have uh, uh, the right amount of investment lined up, then probably that's the time when you started to think, starting to think, you know, uh, I want to have 400 people running a factory to do X and Y, Z. You know, that's, in my opinion, yeah. should be the way to run business, you know. Got it, got it. So at the moment, you just hire people like an outside factory, and then you just pay them and they organize all of that making of your products, but they're not actually your employees. They're like a contractor. No. Right, exactly, exactly. Got it. Yeah, cool. No, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Because, you know, I think there are some like small business owners who actually enjoy like making their product. But that's very different to, like you say, being an entrepreneur such as yourself, where you've actually got other people making the products. I think there's a book I think people have probably read, you probably read it, The E-Myth, where they talk about, you know, if you actually, you know, your passion is actually making the product, then go get a job at someone else's bakery or someone else's food business and right. make the product. But if you actually want to, you know, grow an actual company or a brand then you know obviously you have to let go of some of those tasks um and and do what you're good at and what you're passionate about so that that's, right. that's great advice <laughs> i guess, I guess so, it all depends on different businesses and and don't get me wrong yeah. i actually spent uh, more than more than eight years in the factory on the factory floor uh, my fact my father's factory floor already so i knew the ins and right. outs of uh, manufacturing for sure yeah Got it, got it. And like you said, there's so much to take into account, like the FDA approvals and all yeah, the, the legal yeah. stuff and, you know, all the rest of it, particularly with food, which is particularly um, stringent. Exactly. So uh, I like that you've obviously got key people in there and, and expert people um, helping you. Um, right. So in terms of and in terms of your customers then, Eugene, I mean, it's probably only anecdotally, but would you say are the majority of them vegetarian or vegan or a mix of both? Or uh, what kind of people buy your products? Well, interestingly enough, actually, majority of them um, from I can only say from the emails and Facebook posting that I have over the years, I would say majority of them uh, are not vegetarians or vegans. They're not. Uh, wow, that's they are good. not. They are right. what I call flexitarians. 
And by a lot of study, the, this group of people in U.S. nowadays is close to 40%, which is quite high, you know. Uh, but then again, I believe um, the vegans and vegetarians uh, accounted for a huge portion of our sales for sure. You know, even though they may be just uh, 20, 30 percent of our customer group, they probably accounted for close to 50 percent or even more of our sales for sure. Oh, really? So they're buying more. They're buying more for sure because they're oh, vegan. They're full time yeah. vegetarian. But, but here, here's the tricky or very interesting fact is that Donro, in my opinion, Donro, we're counting on these flexitarians and even meat eaters to grow. And that's exactly what the industry is uh, is going to. And, and that's why Beyond Meat and, and Impossible Food and a lot of other of our competition are, are trying to come up with products to lure uh, flexitarians or meat eaters is that yeah. uh, more and more, not just in U.S., I believe, also throughout the world, in U.K., in, in, in Australia, in Germany, uh, and even in Asia, you saw people uh, who are not vegans or vegetarian, not even flexitarian, and they sometimes uh, are willing to try um, the plant-based foods because, number one, it's not so expensive, uh, especially, uh, for example, in, in Asia, the, the animal protein is getting ever higher. And so once the animal protein reach a point that is not so cheap compared to the plant-based protein, I believe uh, we will see more meat eaters and flexitarians uh, try plant-based foods down the road. And, I agree, and, yeah, yeah, and, that's and right. That, and on, that sorry, is really sorry. why, no problem, and that is really where uh, we want to want to fight uh, for our market share with, you know, I mean, that that is where the, the, the future of the business will be, you know. Exactly. I suppose it's like with Hampton Creek and their Just Mayo, you know, getting in on the shelves at places like Walmart and Target where, exactly. uh, you know, people and like I say, I, I often say, you know, if, if it's the same, if it's two different products, but, but everything else is equal, the price, the taste, then, you know, why wouldn't people choose the, the ethical alternative? So uh, I like that you you said that. Um, so let's talk about the use of the word vegan um, in your marketing materials, because you're not shy about using the word. Um, and there's obviously two schools of thought. And whenever I I ask this to people and it depends on their business you know some people are like yay we use it all over the place and others are like no no it's still too, it's still too scary um so tell us a little bit about your choice to use the word vegan in your marketing materials well vegan is just a way to make uh, people understand our 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 philosophy or our foods uh, much easier much faster you know i I I don't think uh, you know. Um, well, I, I I understand that some people were saying that there's uh, there's some uh, red tape or, or some uh, misunderstanding about vegans uh, from from the majority of our our, our consumers. Um, um, but uh, in my opinion, I think um, uh, you know, especially you have so many celebrities who 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 publicly endorsed or even uh, stated that they are vegans themselves um, the kind of uh, red tapes this kind of uh, the kind of um, uh, 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 a bad signal just kind of went away with with these endorsement you know and 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 another buzzword is definitely plant-based you know because plant-based in my opinion is a more uh, uh, 
millennial friendly, or should I say, uh, food friend friendly term to use uh, to de- describe uh, vegan or vegetarian products? Because after all, that's what it, it is about. It's it's mo- mostly just plant, you know. So so instead of uh, saying vegan meat, which doesn't sound like meaning anything to a lot of people, if I say <laughs> plant meat, they immediately immediately associate that with 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 anything that's not animal, right? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. so, so, I I don't think vegan as a word itself is bad. But then again, going forward, I do believe people will use plant based or plants a lot more than the word vegan or vegetarian because um, it's just too ninety or too eighty uh, to use the word uh, vegan <laughs> or vegetarian. <laughs> We're uh, we're now iPhone age. We're now um, yeah. It, we're now in the internet age. I think people prefer think to prefer plant based a lot better. You know, if you say oh this is made from plants, they understand it right away. If you say vegan, then they would ask you what's the what's the difference in, between vegan and vegetarian for folks who don't understand it. You know, and if you say yeah. vegetarian, they would ask ask it otherwise. You know, so that's a little bit confusing for sure. But when you say plant. Or 100% plant-based, they got it. They got it right away, and it's it's really foody. It's really uh, fruit-like, fruit-friendly, you know. And it, it sounds like food, you know. It doesn't sound like uh, another terminology or technology, you know. Yeah. So, so I like going forward. I honestly like to use the the, the phrase uh, plant-based a lot more than the words uh, vegan or vegetarian down the road, in my opinion. Right, got it. I mean, I suppose for people who are vegan and vegetarian, it's nice for us to be able to see that on the packaging so that we know that, ah, yes, it's definitely for us. And using plant-based can appeal to the people who've still got to come over that way. So I guess interchanging them is is quite a a useful thing to do. So, no, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about uh, promotion, like raising your brand. Like you say, you're a six-year-old company. So in terms of, so you've got the idea, you launched Sophie's Kitchen, and now, you know, you're in the 2000 outlets. And how did you get to that place? in terms of raising the profile of your brand. So talk a little bit about the sort of marketing and PR that you've done that's been successful. Uh, well, uh, over the years, what we found out is that, um, you know, getting your food into the mouth of the people is still very important because you're in food business, you know. You have to get them to try it uh, and before they say, okay, I definitely want to buy your products more down the road, you know. And so, uh, so, so demo, uh, consumer events, and coupons, and um, even just uh, some uh, some randomly uh, uh, giving out some foods uh, in in front of a store would help. You know, in any case, uh, the point is that uh, we we just want to. I mean, even though we're in two thousand stores. We're still unknown. We're still new to a lot of the people, a lot of the consumers in this market, to be honest with you. I mean, our competition uh, are in 30,000 stores. Think about it. You know, it's, it's, it's quite a huge uh, contrast and difference. So, so, so what we think over the years uh, really work uh, is uh, still, number one, getting the food into people's mouths. And number two, uh, standing in front of your consumers. By, by by that, I mean, you know, getting into more distribution, make your product visible on shelf or in the freezer doors and, 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 and try to be uh, uh, as, uh, as close to them as possible. 
So, so that's the kind of strategy that we've been uh, very successful in the past. And going forward, um, we, I think uh, we, we will just uh, not only keep on doing this, but also uh, we, like I said, we want to use the culinary um, uh, experience and, and specialty skills uh, from a lot of our uh, professional chef friends to help uh, promote the awareness of our brand. And I, I believe that that down the road will even help uh, promote our brand further. Fantastic. And you know what I find really fascinating and interesting that you said all those methods that you've just said that are most successful, they're all offline methods. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because everyone's all about social media and you've got to be (laughs) online, you've got to be here. And I love that you've actually said you're actually your most successful one is actually physically going out there in real life, which I think is really quite cool because, you know, sometimes we can get all hidden away online and and what have you. So I think that's that's really important for people to hear, like you say, especially something like food, you know, to actually be able to taste something. And I know from a consumer perspective, like if I go to a veg fest or something and I get to taste a product I remember tasting like a vegan cheese at one of the events uh, here in Australia and it was like a cashew cheese and it was lovely and I thought okay yeah I'll buy one and now when I see it in the store I'll be like oh yeah I'm going to get that because I I, but I've tasted it beforehand Um, and then of course you see them online and that's great and on social media but it was the actual like you say that physical um, experience that that really gets you over the line for sure exactly Um, Now, obviously, you are on social media and you've also been featured in media, uh, like traditional media as well. How useful has that been in growing your brand awareness? That that also contributes uh, to some of the growth of our uh, of our business, for sure. Uh, Like, uh, you know, uh, in some of the markets uh, that uh, we don't have uh, strong distribution in the in the first few years, thanks to social media that uh, the retail buyers in that market decided uh, to, to carry our items, um, especially in places, uh, in some places in the Midwest, uh, near Chicago area. You know, a lot of people eat uh, meat. And, but then again, you got a group of, uh, the, you got a lot of great schools in Chicago or near Chicago, and these millennials just go out to social media and to plea for the, the stores to, to carry our products. So that helps, you know. But then again, you know, like I said, you know, social media can only do that much. And especially after Facebook start charging companies for, for their posting, <laughs> yes. you know, the, the effect just kind of uh, um, diminished uh, in a way, you know, uh, uh, in my experience. So, so again, you know, still um, that's word of mouth. That's good. But then again, it's actually not word of mouth that works. It's actually getting your food into people's mouths that really will work for food business, in my opinion. Yeah, and no, it's a good that's point. That's uh, difficult, point. yeah. Although, yeah. thankfully, I suppose to the internet, I got to hear about your products, and I'm really hoping that you'll expand and get them into Australia as well, especially now I hear that they're gluten-free and soy-free. I'm, I'm Thank curious you. to taste them. So <laughs> <laughs> We're working on it. We're working on it. We're actually uh, got quite a bit of inquiries, uh, not just from Australia, but also from, from Europe and from Israel and from, from New Zealand, too. You know, so, so definitely we're talking to quite a few companies in Australia. Hopefully we'll be there someday. Fantastic. So for those people, Eugene, they, you know, probably obviously they're listening to this, they're being inspired by your your journey and everything. So say that they're working as a nine to five employee, but one day, you know, they're looking to start their own business. They'd love to start their own business. What would you say to them? What would be the key things that they should take into account before making that leap from employment to running their own business? Well, I would just say three things that's uh, uh, very important. Number one, 
make sure your idea is valid. Meaning that uh, even though it's it's only a hypo, you know assumption, hypothesis, but then again, with all the efforts you got or all the numbers you have, you got to be able to back up your theory to make sure that you got a valid market there waiting for you to explore. Number one. Number two is that you really have to make sure you have some sort of funding to fund this business for a while. And by a while, I, I do not mean just one or two years. You probably have to have some funding for at least three to five years, maybe, you know, depending on, 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 on how big the business is. And number three, which is more critical, in my opinion, is align your passion. Over the years, I, I, I found uh, two kinds of entrepreneurs, as I talk to many uh, other entrepreneurs in the same businesses. Now, you got one type of entrepreneurs who are really not so passionate about their business, in my opinion, and they just want to start something on their own so that they can be their own boss, they can feed the family with the business. That's one type of uh, entrepreneurs that yeah. I wanted to in the over the years. And there's another type of entrepreneur, which is more like me, and uh, we're passionate, and we dream really big. We're willing to bet everything or even lose everything on it just to make it to a grand scale, to, a, to, a, to become a global phenomenon. And with all the dedication, I will die trying. I would just want to make it happen. And you really have to decide which camp, which group of entrepreneur you're going to be. It's fine to be the first group, but if you decide that you're going to be the first group, you got to really be smart on your finance and your time and your commitment to, for sure. And if you're the second group, you have to be damn sure that your family either support you or you are ready to dump them down the road sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke, but then again, it tells you how bloody the, 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 the hardship uh, the road is going to be. You know, I mean, it's just uh, so painful uh, along the way. But then again, it's a struggle and it's a decision. The world is not without choices. You just have to make one, you know. I love that. And I love your honesty as well. I think it's actually really good for people to hear that because I know I've, same as you, I've met those, both those different types of entrepreneurs and particularly, you know, the ones that just want to say, oh yeah, I just want to run my own business, work my own hours. And it's like reality check. You're probably going to be working a lot more hours. Um, and it's that sort exactly. of unrealistic thing. And like you say, when the going gets tough, uh, you know, they're far more likely to quit. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Definitely. someone who's a passion based entrepreneur, like you say, you go that extra mile and at least you can say, you know you you put everything into it and and then you learn and if you have to start again you start again but at least you've actually put it put everything into it so <clears throat> I appreciate you sharing those those differences that's great and now we touched on you touched on funding a little bit there which is interesting that you said you need to have funding for like three to five years so what are some of the funding methods that you you think are useful for people I and mean, obviously people can get a loan they could try and get investors from the beginning but that might be tricky unless they've got an established record <clears throat> or savings so what about for people who maybe they're not completely poor or you know financially at a loss but they're maybe not rich either what would your advice be to them in terms of getting getting some kind of funding to get their project off the ground well uh this is uh, really uh, a a difficult question to answer because i mean obviously every business is different 
So everyone has their own very different uh, scenario. But what I can say is that depending on the size of the market you're planning to go into or the size of the business you're planning to start, you should probably budget, you should probably be able to budget a, 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 a fund uh, to run your business for at least uh, three years. And with that budget in mind, you know, obviously you have to take into account of the size of your business after three years to, to meet that budget. So with that budget in mind, you then work backwards because you got to have at least uh, something for you, for yourself to, to live on. So, so, so once you got that budget number, then maybe I would say the rule of thumb is that uh, your, your total wealth or the, your total wealth plus the, plus the money you can borrow should be what uh, maybe two times or even three times of that budget that you're looking at. Uh, but it's, it's in the perfect world. Sometimes I, I heard uh, some of my fellow entrepreneurs saying that they have just one time of their budget and they, they bit everything in. <laughs> and I do run into people <laughs> like that too, you know. So, so it, it, it just gives you an idea how you should think about the flow, you know. Uh, uh, and in terms of how you can get the money, if you're saving or your 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 asset is really that is really not that much, I would recommend first and foremost is definitely your friends and family, because these are the allies that you can talk to to help shore up uh, some of your finances and 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 help you go into the the, the venture uh, more easily. Uh, other, other than your food, uh, friends and friends and family, you know, a lot of time people overlook um, the traditional financing um, uh, methodology, which is the bank. You know, you really should talk and establish your relationship with your banker um, um, sooner, actually long before you start your business. And this is the kind of benefit that I got. Uh, you know, I, I quite frankly and quite luckily, I have a very good uh, friend at uh, Wells Fargo. And so over the years, I know how the bank operates, and, and he knows me very well. So I can furnish a lot of the uh, documents uh, very fast and a timely, timely matter. And then they, and plus my good credit rating, they've been able to give me a very good line of credit uh, for to run for me to run my business. And so, I love so, that you've said that. That's really that's really good advice, actually, about um, maintaining or starting and getting that relationship with your finances or with your banker going exactly. well before you start your business. I think that's really important. So I want to just pause and it highlight is. what you said there. That is such good advice. Um, it is. So I, I mean, because yeah. a lot of people overlook it. You know, you know, even myself, I I was I was having that relationship casually. I didn't I didn't know that I would use it for my business. To be to be quite honest with you. I just thought this guy is a, is a cool guy. I ran into the bank. I, I met this guy. I know this guy. I thought he's cool. And uh, I love uh, keeping in touch with him. And then we become, became good friends. And who knows? Just a few years after I started my business, oh, geez, he really helped me a lot. You know, He helped <laughs> me understand how the bank thinks and, and how the bank wants to see my financial in order to give me the, the money that I want and I, so that I can better prepare for myself. You know, and that's yeah. all very critical. You know, if you don't have that relationship, you don't know how they think you will never get the money from them. And exactly. by the same token, that's how it works with investors too. better off getting into conversation with the investors that you want to you want to get your money from you want to get funding from, you know, dance with them early on. 
even though you're not trying to get money from them at that point, dancing with them for a few years, couple years down the road, it would definitely help you get your funding. That's that's the kind yeah. of advice I can give to people. You know, that's really good advice. I really appreciate you sharing that. And they're like, there's like entrepreneur networks and investor networks, like that hold events exactly. that you can go to. And like you say, just without going to get something from the start, but just going and hanging out and being part of those circles. And also, as well, I want to point out, you said as well, making sure your credit rating is good. So I think that's right. something to be aware of. If you're still employed and you're maybe thinking of starting a business, get your credit rating in order before you make that leap as well. So. So um, it's interesting, yeah, that it all kind of starts well before you decide to actually launch the business. So I really appreciate you you sharing that. Um, so in terms of personal qualities, we're getting towards the end now. So in terms of, uh, you know, mindset, so a lot of people say running your own business, it really kind of forces you to work on yourself and develop yourself because you're getting out of your comfort zone, you know, doing things you wouldn't normally do. What personal or what are the key personal qualities you believe um, someone needs to have to be a success? entrepreneur well uh, that's a very difficult uh, question to answer um, I would just say that uh, over the years I saw like maybe two types of uh, entrepreneurs one are the group uh, who are extremely lucky they're just uh, happen to be the right person at the right time in the right place so they don't really possess any kind of uh, special personality and they are on it. And these are <laughs> the very lucky people. You know, I, do, I did see quite a few of uh, these lucky people here in the U.S. in various industries, to be quite honest with you. So if you are the... What about for the unlucky ones? <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm going to <laughs> like myself. If you're the unlucky ones... <laughs> then I would suggest the number one trait of your personality should be persistence. I think persistence is the key because that uh, you know um, uh, over the years I saw many uh, my fellow entrepreneurs they gave up so early, too early in, indeed. You know, I mean, oh, really? I, I had another uh, vegan uh, food entrepreneur that I knew and. Uh, you know, she gave up the business um, uh, just one year after we both uh, started the business at the same time. And too bad, you know, I mean, if she hang on till, till now, who knows, right? Uh, so persistence is definitely one thing. Uh, the, the other thing is, I would say, patience. Well, this thing actually, these two things actually go hand in hand together. Uh, but then again, sometimes uh, patience is even more difficult, especially when we are having so many things, uh, so many distractions, thanks to our technology, you know, it's hard for you to be patient on one thing when, when you saw things are failing and you kind of think, wow, the whole world, uh, other people are winning. Am I, am I losing? Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you start, you start to worry, you know? And, and so I, I think uh, those two traits go hand in hand together. But then again, it's quite important for a successful entrepreneur uh, to become successful with, with those uh, personal traits. The last but not least is um, what I think uh, is uh, what I call Zen or calmness. You know, how you maintain your calm, your calmness when you are in the middle of all the crisis or the hardship and still make the best and sound decision. Um, that's really tough. 
And that's, in a way, I think it, it's not something you probably will have um, before you enter the business, something you can natured um, or cultured, should I say, um, through the process in a way, you know. But it is definitely important that uh, you maintain a very uh, uh, peaceful and a very calm attitude when you are making a very difficult decision. And so that decision won't make you feel regret down the road in the future. You know, that's excellent so, advice. I yeah. love all three of those. And that I really relate to what you're saying about when uh, that patience thing, well, obviously the persistent thing, but the patience thing, like, you know, you see someone who's maybe coming into your industry or business and then suddenly they've got more Twitter followers and you're like, oh, my gosh, oh, should I be focusing on that? Oh, what should right. I do? And you know what I mean? It's like, OK, just stay the course and, and keep doing what you're doing. And because um, we can all fall into that trap, that comparison thing, which can basically kind of almost paralyze uh, an entrepreneur you know because you kind of think exactly. oh why should I bother kind of thing and it can lead to demotivation and everything and I love what you've said about the zen that's a really lovely way of putting it and not making those decisions when you're high on emotion um, exactly. kind of thing, making sure you're making yeah. them from that calm and rational place so I love that so um, final question then Eugene what's the what's the long-term vision for Sophie's Kitchen and for yourself well uh, longer term we definitely want to be uh, a global company and a much longer term um, if I may say which is kind of wild we want to be uh, uh, inter-celestial company uh, you know we want to we want to we want to go to Mars inter-celestial oh my god you just said <laughs> yeah. that I was, when you said that I said did I mishear that you just said that I'm not joking <laughs> oh but uh, I'm not joking a, but this no is really this is really the, the future. Answer. That's the best yeah. answer I've had to that question. No one's ever said that. That is so cool. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when I said out loud this vision uh, about uh, four years ago to my partners, they said, Eugene, don't say that to our investors. This is crazy. <laughs> and then after I read Elon Musk's story, you know, I think I'm not. I'm actually one of the visionary. I'm really a visionary. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not kidding myself. I mean, I mean, because I mean, think about it. I mean, if you go on a, a project, a, 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 a mission to Mars, are you going to carry a cattle? Are you going to carry some ducks, some chickens? No way, right? And uh, what? Who? Who? What? What kind of foods that these uh, astronauts are going to eat down the road when they are on Mars? They are going to be vegetarians or vegans. Why? Because everything they can carry is probably a few seeds and some machines. So when they get to Mars, they can plant the seeds, grow the plants, and make it into plant meat. And that's what they're going to eat, right? And that makes sense. And that's the only solution, in my opinion. We're not going to have, going to have enough space for another, another cattle or, or, or even a chicken to be on board the spaceship. And, and, and even if we do that, by the time they got to Mars, they, they all died. Right. And so so vegan vegan products are really the future for all humankind. That's a great yeah. soundbite, you know. That's Thank so you. Cool. Thank that's, you. That's, that's the best answer I have to say with all due respect to all my previous guests. I've got to say that's the coolest answer to that question. It's the... <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I hope I didn't scare you, but uh, no, <laughs> that's really I mean, my, you know. my, my, yeah. 
that's really my vision. We're we're getting there, you know. Like, I mean, I think there there have been there have been like missions to Mars. You know what I mean? I think we're getting closer to that whole, you know, and whether that's a good thing or not, you know, humans colonizing other planets. That's a whole kind of conversation in itself. We haven't exactly done a great job with this one, but um, I love that if we are going to that we we will take vegan food with us and make the, the planets vegan. So I absolutely love that, Eugene. You've been wonderful today. You've shared thank so you. much. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for having me, Katrina. I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I look forward no to your problem. products coming to Australia. And when I'm next in the US, I hope I'll get to taste some as well. So no problem. Thank you Just for let joining me know. Me. <laughs> You're welcome. You. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was Eugene Wang of Sophie's Kitchen. You can find out more at sophieskitchen.net. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 50. Now for our vegan business news roundup. A group of high school students in New Zealand made the finals of a local competition for young entrepreneurs with their vegan chocolate milk, reports Stuff. The four young women, all ethical vegans, took part in the Young Enterprise Scheme and created Ease Chocolate Milk in conjunction with Patone Artisan Chocolatier, The Chocolate Story, using Belgian chocolate in their coconut milk product. In their presentation to the local business community, the group outlined the future of their company, which was met with praise by the judges, particularly because the product was created to fill a gap in the market. How fantastic is this? Not only that young people are doing something so cool, but they're all female. (laughs) Great to see them working together in this way. Still on the subject of milk, the global coconut milk industry will grow by 15.4% every year until 2020, according to market research company Reports and Reports, reports Veg News. Health benefits of dairy-free milk were found to be the main driver for increased sales. The majority of these sales will be in the Americas, including Brazil and Argentina, where 86 and 61% respectively of the populations are lactose intolerant. Key companies responsible for the popularity of coconut milk include Goya Foods, Pure Harvest and White Wave Foods. So exciting to get another report predicting growth in vegan milks. It's becoming quite a crowded market, which is a good thing. The more choice we can offer people as an alternative to dairy, the better. I've said on the show before, when I went vegan 20 years ago in 1996, back in the UK, there were only two choices of dairy-free milk, unsweetened soya milk and soya milk that was sweetened with apple juice. That was it. (laughs) No nut milks, no coconut milks, just that. So it's great to have all these new choices and flavours. London has a new chicken shop and it's all vegan, reports The Telegraph. The Temple of Satan, that's S-E-I-T-A-N, I love the name, very, very clever, is set to open a permanent store in Hackney in the city's East End next month in January 2017. Owner Rebecca McGuinness said she was moved to create the business after seeing a gap in the market for vegan fried chicken, which was also the dish that she missed most after going vegan. Seitan, as you may know, is made from wheat flour and serves as the base to create the vegan chicken products. 
The brand has already picked up a slew of loyal fans through their appearances at food fairs and markets. Renowned UK blogger Fat Gay Vegan rated the business as higher up in the clouds than world class. That's a pretty cool endorsement. You can check out the opening date on the Temple of Satan social media. I'll certainly be checking it out, research of course, <laughs> when I'm next over in London. I was actually born in Hackney, although I grew up in a place called Dartford, which is just outside of southeast London. And I also lived in Hackney for a while when I was a student and for six months in the mid-90s. There used to be a 24-hour bagel shop in Dalston that I'd go to. This was before I was vegan. So I'm very happy to see vegan eateries opening up there. Wayfair Foods, a company based in Montana, has undergone a revamp and is set to unveil a suite of innovative vegan products, including puddings, butters, cream cheeses and more, reports latest vegan news. The company initially launched in 2010, but although the products were popular with vegans, they failed to hit the mark with non-vegans. Owner Kelly Coffin took the drastic step of pulling the products and starting from scratch. He told Latest Vegan News that the decision was agonising, but he was determined to get the creations to a standard where mainstream customers would eat them. It took me far longer and more money than I ever dreamed, and it was one of the most unpleasant experiences in my life, but we really, really believe in this and that's why we did it, he said. The products are made with a custom-built machine that ensures that the entire ingredients are either used or recycled so there's no waste. Although currently only available in the northeast and northwest of the US, Wayfair is working to expand nationally and then internationally. So huge kudos to Kelly Coffin for his persistence and working through the emotional and financial pain of a do-over. I've got an upcoming interview with Susan Cuscaden, a natural food consultant with nearly 40 years experience in the business, and she'll be talking about how to take steps to get your product right from the start. So keep an eye out for that episode. Finally, after its recent investment into vegan firm Beyond Meat, Tyson Foods has announced the creation of a $150 million venture capital fund to gain exposure to innovative new forms of protein, reports Forbes. Tyson Executive Vice President of Strategy Monica McGook said the new company, Tyson New Ventures, seeks to work with food entrepreneurs who are developing breakthrough products, technology and business models. We believe we can accelerate the growth of startups through our capabilities in such areas as food and culinary research and development, sourcing, insights, customer relationships and distribution, said McGook. Now, on the one hand, this can be seen as a good thing, anything to get companies away from investing in cruelty. But of course, Tyson at the moment still plans to stick with its original meat products as well. I like the idea of plant-based protein alternatives becoming so mainstream that meat manufacturers phase themselves out and make the switch to 100% plant-based. Whether that happens in my lifetime remains to be seen, especially as the developments in lab meat or cultured meat come to the fore. 
But I still think it's a positive move that consumer demand for vegan food is growing to the point where these big meat companies are recognising that they have no choice but to get with the programme, even if it's just on a small scale to begin with. What do you think? Is it a good idea for these meat companies like Tyson to invest in alternatives or not? Tweet me at Katrina Fox and let me know what you think. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business, and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. 